Welcome to Life on Mars, a podcast about technology, entrepreneurship, and innovation. You will listen to stories of the best founders, inventors, experts, and celebrities from all around the galaxy. Welcome to Life on Mars, ladies and gentlemen, uh, the podcast of Mars Space, where we discuss technology, innovation, entrepreneurship. We got two great people here tonight. Uh, we got uh, the founder of Prototype, uh, Pontus Osterberg. He is the manager of the Spanish branch of the company. That's a, that's a design and product development studio from, from Sweden. And Gordon Cardiff, CEO and founder of ClearPeaks. Uh, for the sake of transparency, I need to announce that both of them have been or are active clients of Marsface, but most of all, I'm interviewing them because they're really great people that I've been having this conversation that we're going to have here for years with both of them in how to, um, how to generate business, how to do sales as a CEO or a founder of the, of the company. And I thought it would be a great idea to bring the three of us together and discuss it here. Hello, gentlemen. How are you doing? Welcome to the show. Very good, Alex. Thank you for having me. Hello, Alex. Great to be here. Um, just uh, for, for both of you, if in one minute you can describe your, your company a little bit better because I haven't done it. So, Pontus, you might want to start with that very briefly. And, um, sure. Um, so, I'm one of the co-founders of uh, Prototype. Um, we were originally called Prototype Stockholm, um, mirroring the fact, of course, that we were based in Stockholm. Uh, nowadays, we're also based uh, in Barcelona and opening up a new office, a second office in, in, uh, in Sweden, in the town of Uppsala, quite close to Stockholm. Um, you mentioned in the, the first, um, you know, in the introduction that we were doing design and uh, development, not quite true, we're just uh, developing. And we normally say that we, we call ourselves a code lab. And the long version, the extended version is that we're a code lab for um, companies who want to break new ground. Um, that meaning that we break, uh, work with um, either brand new technology where there are no specialists and, and you're, you're better at use if you're a generalist, um, or we work with companies that might not work with, with the cutting edge technology, but at least are doing something new from their perspective. So that might be uh, a very traditional company that is going uh, digital or, um, or a new, new offering that is digital as opposed to, to before. Thank you, Gordon. Sure. So, yes, yeah, so ClearPix, uh, we're a business intelligence um, and data specialist company. Uh, we're based in Barcelona. Uh, we have uh, presence. Uh, so, we are, obviously, we have our head office in Barcelona. We have a development office in Reus, um, just south of Barcelona, one hour south. We have um, two offices, one in Abu Dhabi, one in Dubai, servicing the Middle East market where we're very active. Um, so, so basically what we're doing is, uh, so we're, we're a consulting firm. So we offer um, our customers who are typically enterprise customers, they're, they're large, um, the, uh, the service of integration of all their data sources. So many customers that are dispersed over SAP, uh, Oracle platforms, Microsoft platforms, whatever. So we will bring all that data uh, from those different transactional systems into one place um, called the data warehouse. Um, and then we have a whole series of visualization, um, let's say, vehicles to, to, to get value out of that data. Uh, so that can be uh, through what we call the executive experience. It can be through just visual dashboarding. It can be through web-type applications. Um, through mobile type applications, so depending on the the, the kind of the, the the user and the type of consumer they are, then we'll make solutions for them. Okay. Great. So, okay, yeah. Uh, no worries. Just I cut you off. Sorry. No, no, no. So, so that, that that's fine. I was just about to say that we're uh, we're looking obviously to expand into different uh, regions right now, and US is very active for us right now. In the U.S. is always very active. Um, <laughs> since we since we got the three kinds of company, right? We're perhaps we're, we're definitely the smallest one here at Marspace. Uh, Prototype will be more like a like a middle sized company with a couple offices at least. You got more people spread out, and then uh, Gordon, you you run a, a definitely a bigger bigger company uh, with over a hundred employees and servicing perhaps the biggest clients of our uh, of the three of us. So, but let's start from the very beginning. We'll go to, we'll end up talking about how to sell to enterprise and big contracts. But do you remember the first contract, how it started and 
how did you get it? Because one of the main challenges we found here in, at Marspace was we were the three founders. We were um, working in consulting before that. And therefore, we had a, uh, we had a non-competing um, agreement with the companies we we're working for. So therefore, we couldn't get contracts for the company if we didn't quit our, pre- our previous job, which is what happened. I quit my job and I started looking for new contacts. But definitely, I could not access my previous contacts just because they belong to the former company. How, how was it for you? How did you find your first client? Maybe uh, who wants to start? I can start. Um, All right, go for it. So um, I, I'm an engineer um, by background, uh, and I was working in an engineering capacity in a, a company called Compaq, uh, who you remember made computers. And um, I, I decided to leave uh, for, for different reasons. I've been there like four or five years, and I decided to leave. And um, to form my own small practice, I, I got kind of the buzz out of the data thing. It's, this was going back quite a few years now, as you can imagine. And uh, and I, I was very involved with using data in a manufacturing capacity to improve processes and, uh, and improve uh, just the business that was going on inside this quite state-of-the-art manufacturing plant. Um, so I, So I did that. Um, and I, I've always, uh, there, there's some principles that I think that you have to take to your working life, um, whatever you do. And, um, and I think, um, you know, quality and integrity and trust are these three principles that you have to have. Um, and I think that when I left, uh, and I'd literally been in my apartment. This was in Scotland. And I'd been in my apartment for like two weeks trying to build my own business plan. And I got a phone call from my ex-employer, Compaq, saying, look, why don't we heard that you're looking to uh, build a, uh, a consulting firm around the area of data and so on. Before then, we didn't have, uh, BI didn't even exist. It was called uh, Executive Information Systems. Um, and I said, yeah, I am. I'm looking into it. And they said, but look, we've got the first lead for you uh, in our headquarter in, in Munich, uh, which is our European headquarter. So I, I was kind of a little bit astounded by that, obviously. And I, I made a phone call to the contact in Munich. I explained what I'd been, been doing in manufacturing and everything else. They loved the fact that they could get someone who has come from the hardcore manufacturing of these products to the headquarter that could really talk in detail about the problems in supply chain, the problems in planning, the problems in distribution. And um, I, and I think that the, it's the those three components. I think that when you do a quality job and you provide trust uh, and you demonstrate trust and integrity, uh, I think these are the, the these are the facilitators that just make it easy to then engage, and and that that engagement lasted five years. Uh, you were, I mean, it's not entire luck, right? Because you had a background, you had done a great job previously during. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, no, no. But it came to you in a sense, right? Yeah, yeah, no, no. They they phoned me up. They literally two weeks out the out the building, and uh, uh, that was a bold move from their side because I had left. And I had left a lot of colleagues. And so for me to then reappear two weeks later in, in Munich, in Germany, and yeah. find my name back on the mail system as an external uh, was, a, was obviously a, you know, was a, a decision that someone took uh, knowingly. But, um, but that was the start of ClearPix. Pontus, how was it for you? Did the offer come to you or the opportunity come to you or you had to go out and hustle and... How was it? No, no, it was quite undramatic and, and a little, I mean, it has similarities with Gordon's story. Uh, yes, the, the offer came to us. At, at the time, me and my two co-founders were working in a startup that we helped founded as well, uh, but with a, one, one digital product, like a, a web platform that we were building. Uh, it was quite successful in, in accumulating attention and, and even prices in, in, in Stockholm and Sweden. Uh, but not in finding uh, our business model. So we we kind of knew that we were 
coming things were coming to an end and um we're preparing for life after this this first uh, you know first take at at uh, at entrepreneurship and since we had quite a success before we were actually um you know poked by, by, by clients before like hey why don't you help us out with this uh we need help with that uh and at the time we were focusing and we still are on development so we had um my, my co-founders are, are excellent developers i am not developing myself but uh they, they are uh, so it was easy for us to find the first client or they actually asked us if we could do work for them and uh, it was it was really not very dramatic at all to, to set off uh, what was a little bit nervous though maybe was that we we uh we were always quite um you know i know it, it's at least in sweden it's Swedish is a bad word to be opportunistic, but but you know we were if there was an opportunity we would um, benefit from it. And in this uh, particular circumstance, we had uh, a friend, basically an another very good developer who wanted to work and he wanted to work with us. Uh, so the only thing, the only risk, or if you would even call it that, that we, that we brought on was that we brought on uh, a new team member from the beginning, who was not a founding partner and who who was asking for salary from day one, uh, which uh, the rest of us, of course, were were prepared to um you know wait with um and at the time i guess it felt it maybe a little bit risky looking back it was like yeah there was really no risk <laughs> involved at all what would be my my yeah my judgment now and at the beginning you know we're 100 focused on sales right at least the ceo or i think the founders uh we got we are three co-founders here at Marspace and we were focused 100% on sales at the beginning because we had fuck all to do, right? We didn't have any clients. So the first thing we did, just like email people, ask around contacts and all of that. But fast forward to today, what's your percentage of time invested into sales of your day-to-day -day life? Pontus, maybe you want to start? Uh, you know, as a founding partner, you know. As a founding partner, or, yeah. or the contract. It's, uh, for, for me, it's quite uh, small, I would say. Uh, I, I'm involved mostly in, in upselling, uh, mm -hmm. and um, part of it is because I'm based in Barcelona, whereas 90-95% of our business uh, or our clients are in, in Sweden. So there's an obvious... Um, you know, mismatch. I, I obviously can't go and meet people over lunch or, or pitch uh, at meetings left and right. Uh, even though Corona has kind of made that uh, more likely because uh, our clients are no, more likely to accept uh, even sales call or, or uh, you know, early, early, early stage sell uh, meetings online, which was, I would say, very difficult before, um, but out of necessity. Um, because what I guess what we can see now after six months or seven months in into this crisis is that that uh, business has to go on and and we will find ways and and people will need to buy stuff still you know in the beginning my, my impression was definitely that sales was not working very well but but now um yeah there's a need to buy and to buy stuff uh now and you're, you're prepared to do it on on video conference but um so back to the question how much do i spend yes so i would say like direct sales time i would say around 20 percent mm -hmm. uh, and at some weeks i would do 40 percent and some weeks i do zero um more or less but but that's that's it and most of it it's incoming sales or it's upsell on on uh, existing clients or uh, returning clients because we have quite a few of those as well uh, i guess that's similar for for you other guys as well but uh, but that's that's a sale nevertheless uh, that has to be done somehow yeah. You're so, mostly an inbound company, right? As, a, as I understand it. Yes, we are. We are definitely mostly inbound inbound sales. Uh, we're trying to to uh, to shift that throughout all the years, and we're now on our tenth year as a company. Uh, it's been very difficult to shift that, and uh, I'm not crying over it because I think inbound sales is a lot uh, nicer. Um, yeah, but yeah. of course we, we're always. Uh, struggling with uh, the feeling uh, like are we actually in charge of our own sales pipe pipeline or is or is it someone else who's in charge of it um <laughs> but kind of uh, um yeah we've kind of grown used to used to the fact that that's the way it is and and we're, we're constantly growing we're now 30 plus people um and and it's still the sales are still made the same way Yes. Gordon, how about for you? What's your distribution sales? And uh, you, you know, I I think 
I don't like to use the word sales um, because we don't really sell. Um, but but you know I, I know what your question is um, in terms of where my time is spent. Um, maybe fifty percent um, of my time is I would say probably say probably sixty sixty percent uh, three days out of five would be if not. Um, working with our customer in some way or another, working with people who are working with our customer in some way or another. So, so if, if we have a sales team in house, um, and and it's it's uh, it's coaching and advising and consulting, it's not really selling. Um, there is the proposal bit, you know, where it's you know, um, but. Um, but I would say 60% of my time, uh, probably too much, I would say, is, is there. Interesting thing, because Panto said you're trying to build a sales team or maybe you try to at least change to outbound. While you Gordon, you might have done it. When did you, at what point of the company did you start building a sales team? Yeah, I mean, that, that's a very good question. Um, yeah. I'm just trying to think now. I mean, we're 20 years on, so... Um, we had a lot of false starts, okay? Um, very difficult thing to hire a salesperson to sell consulting. It's a really difficult uh, hire to make um, because fundamentally you're selling trust. We don't sell BI services, right? We sell trust to get the job done and And so to hire someone to sell that trust message is, is a complex one. Um, but, but we probably made our first hire, I guess, around 2008 and, and probably went through four or five bad experiences before realizing that actually, you know what, we don't need salespeople. We need trusted advisors and we, we need to take the people from inside the company and bring them to the, to that end of the business. Uh, yeah. they say that it's easier to teach sales, or at least, you know, to, to, to shape an engineer into a oh, yeah. salesperson or a pre-sales person that the other way around that to teach technology to salespeople, right? Was that your case? Did you just readapt somebody? Okay. And how did they, Because that's actually, that's my case. In my previous company, they got me out of the engineering team and they said like, you're going to be a good pre-sales. So I was like, what's going on? <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen. But definitely, we, uh, there are very few things that we need to learn. Of course, you will, maybe you will not understand all the economics. You will not understand all the, you know, the relationship model with the client. But by doing it that way, you're, uh, you're taking somebody who has got a fundamental understanding of the company culture of the business, of the products, of the services, knows how to implement it, knows how to estimate it. But they just need to talk business, which is really complicated. But that brings me to my next point, which is when companies, and you, you, you raise a really good point, Gordon, which is when companies hire a salesperson, they just go out into the market looking for somebody who does everything. And sales is can be outbound, can be inbound, can be farming, can be a relationship, can be a key, uh, key account uh, manager, can be, you know, there's a huge, huge, huge uh, diversity of roles out there. You cannot expect that somebody has got all of them, right? No. So what was the what was the kind of person that you actually managed? Was it a developer? Which is the, was it a, like a, some sort of a hybrid consultant or what person did you adapt there? The, the so you mean the one that worked the one that okay. ended up working yeah yeah i mean the, these are um it's, it's exactly what you said. i mean it's uh look we we know that our customers when 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 i have a conversation with a customer they they want to talk detail they want to learn they want to hear what we are doing in other customers of similar size and so they all want to use our uh kind of spying capability of seeing what's going on in many of our customers to then make sure that they're somewhere in the best in class, right? And uh, so, so that's a, a great uh, uh, advisory service that we can offer. Um, so to do that, you need to have people that know what they're talking about. 
I mean, and, and sales guys are not renowned for that, right? They're, they're more renowned in, for negotiating and, and, uh, and being kind of pushy and, you know, all the typical things that go with, with the classic sales guy. And, and I don't want to tar the brush too much because um, there are very good consulting salespeople out there as well, obviously. So, um, so, so, I mean, our view has always been, look, we don't care about the polished kind of the blue suit and the, and the, the fancy kind of look and feel. We much, we're much more focused on what our conversation is about, what, uh, what experience uh, our guys can bring to our customers, how they articulate that experience, how they build the trust with the client and, and knowledge builds trust. Uh, much more so than brochures or, or websites or anything else. I mean, just talking and, and connecting to the client, uh, talking about how we can solve pain uh, that they are suffering. Um, and so that's what we look for inside the company here. And we've got, we've got plenty of people. It's not even just our people on the sales end that are doing that. I mean, all our consultants in the end are selling. Because they're engaged with the client every day, they're talking to the client, and that's that's selling because you're building trust. How about the the part where you? I mean, one of the things I struggle the most with is when I've got I don't know, like right now we got we're talking to twenty prospective clients just off the top of my 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 head, right? Uh, I need to have all that information in my head. I need to report to my co-founders to you know. Uh, push information down the, the the sales funnel, create the reports, then craft the proposal, and so on and so forth. But at the same time, we got a company to run. And Xavi, our CTO, needs to manage technological staff. Jordi needs to manage finance and operations. And I need to manage other things like marketing and you know talking to the team as a CEO, strategy, so on and so forth. How do you how do you apply all of these context switching without burning out? How do you do that, Pontus? Well, it is difficult. It was it was very difficult when I was the managing director, which I which I was in the beginning of the company. Uh, it is very difficult for the person who is now the managing director, and that's the feedback he gets from me whenever we have, you know, f- feedback sessions that that like to kind of sort out what's what's really what's what's important and what's what's urgent because it's normally not the same things, um, and I think it always will be difficult uh, you start out when you're small you think like wow i have to do everything myself and this is really a lot of things to do as you grow of course there are more specialist functions but then instead there's a bigger responsibility of coordinating um and, and you're still left with the responsibility if you're if you're the managing director um now i am officially the managing director of our spanish branch because we have a spanish company but but uh in 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 practice, I'm not the managing director as much as I'm, I'm running the Spanish branch. But I'm very much involved with, with the management of, of the whole company, uh, the, the one that is based in, in Sweden as well. And um, I mean, that, and that's on top of, of the life that we live now compared to the life that we used to live 30 years ago or, or 20 years ago before the smartphone. And, and that was not even 20 years ago. But, but you know, like, let me just notifications that that uh, 10 years, for Just 10 10 years. years all the time and um f- for me i'm trying to i mean i have like micro micro things that i do to try not to get stressed because basically i also believe it's this this classical thing the more the stress the, the less you uh, stuff you get done and the more stressed you will become of what you didn't do so it's kind of like a vicious circle and and one of them, for example, is like I don't have notifications, and and uh, many people are, are like, "What? You don't have notifications? You have to be late to everything." It's like, well, I, I I'm not, and it, and it's a way for me to manage and do what, what's important rather than what's what's urgent, and um, that's also what I what I talk a lot with with my managing director uh, in Sweden. Um, but it is, I mean, you're definitely onto something, Alex. It is easy to, to be overwhelmed by, by all the things you should do. Um, and, and in the end, I mean, I, I, look to take, uh, I like to take uh, comfort in that we're doing well as a company. And, and, and um, I personally talk a lot about uh, staying out of the vicious circle. You know, you don't need to make this spectacular uh, 
involvement or jumps in your in your development as a company as long as you don't start sliding backwards because once you start sliding backwards lots of bad things happen then you're the best people of your team quit and when they uh, quit that project the particular product they were in is going to suffer and you have to throw someone in else in there and that person is suffering because they didn't have a proper handover from the previous person so you burn out the next person or or the client starts uh, thinking that you're not doing well um so, so we talk a lot about like uh, we don't have to be spectacular in in what we achieve, you know. Like we, we're not we don't need to have growth of fifty percent a year or or all those fancy fancy things as long as we stay away from 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 the negative spiral. I know it sounds very very defensive, and I, I guess to some extent it is. But for us, it, that's been the neighbor. We have never actually had to save, you know, what do you call like to look back and 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 uh, you know guard our back because things are going well. Uh, but I think the mindset is helping us with that. Gordon, how about for you? And how did you start delegating stuff? Because that's a really hard thing to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, look, you know, I, I, I totally agree to say I, I don't think there's a right answer to to that question. I think everyone has their ways of. Uh, it's a kind of a windy road to get to the from start to and. Um, there are plenty of books about, you know, professional services and to manage it and all the rest. Um, of course, there are stressful periods. Uh, you know, we're dealing with customers and, and, you know, like yourselves, you're dealing with uh, technology. Uh, the technology has to work. Uh, the technology can be part of processes which uh, can be critical to companies. And uh, so that in itself brings a stress. Uh, you know, you need to hire people. That in itself brings a stress. You need to create pipeline that creates a stress, uh, and you need to grow consultants and, and and build a marketing operation. So, so yes, um, you've got to do it. And I I think that's why you know, I've been to many of these kind of equi forums uh, where they talk about consulting firms and the success of consulting firms, and that most consulting firms don't get to twenty employees before they crash. Uh, and I can fully understand where we are now. Looking back at that, I can understand why that is because uh, typically consulting firms start with a group of partners. Uh, that is a stress in itself. Um, you know, you don't always agree on things. Uh, and, and maybe sometimes that can be a hindrance that you, you've got to kind of consult with others. Um, in my own case, I was very... Uh, I was maybe more driven 20 years ago in that uh, I just I knew that uh, I had to get past that 20 mark as quickly as I could um, and prepared to take the risk uh, and risk creates stress. So, look, uh, there's people out there that, that just want that and they kind of get the adrenaline rush from it. Um, and, and, and I'm one of those. I, I enjoy it. Uh, as much as I find it, you know, just look at me. I mean, I'm, I'm, I've, I've gone through the stress machine 200,000 times, you know, <laughs> but, um, but, you know, there's a lot of fun in it as well. And I think you need somehow, I think what Pontus was saying and, you know, focusing on the positives and, and try eliminate the negatives. And, and I think you can turn stress into a, a positive thing if you're, um, if, if, you know, if you stand back and, and, take stock of really what it get rid of the negatives, you know, and, and try and block out negative, uh, you know, events and, and try and use this, the stress positively. Talking about sales and that, that's, that's something we get all the time. And, um, in most of the processes, especially with big companies or corporates, right? You're always asked about, first of all, references, similar projects. What's the biggest client you've ever worked for? Have you ever worked in this sector? Of course, this is a tricky question because most of the times you're never going to work for a corporate or, you know, for enterprise if you've never done it before. So this creates a vicious circle. So how did you get your, for both, for both of you, how did you get your first enterprise customer and how was it? How did you circumvent this whole, uh, the, the, this whole idea of, oh, you need to have credentials to actually start working for these kind of companies? Who wants to start? Pontus, you go. Well, I'm thinking which was our first corporate client. I think, I mean, the first year uh, in business, we were working a lot like a, like a uh, subcontractor. And this was back 2010, 2011. Uh, digital products were then still 
I mean, there were either the corporate tracks or the, the more creative tracks maybe that we were in, but then it was still handled by, by the marketing agencies because, you know, back in 2000, nobody did web applications. So there were web pages and who did them? Well, it was the, the, the you know, the, the agencies, marketing agencies. And then of course, luckily there was a shift thinking like, Hey, marketing agencies are not, are not, the natural place to do uh, complex uh, digital products, but that's kind of how we started. And so as a subcontractor, we got in, in contact with uh, quite big clients immediately. Um, but it wasn't us that had to pitch on, on these um, big, um, big corporates. And, and to be honest, maybe it's, it's the market where we, we worked because we're mostly based in Sweden. Um, and and that's uh, luck. I don't know. I I really don't have have experience from from other markets. We have a few have had a few American clients over the years, but um, since we've been kind of recommended or, or the sales have been in inbounds, it, it hasn't really mattered if they were uh, corporate clients or not. And I don't recognize that that they are you know telling me like, hey, if you can show us that you work with this and this client, you're not going to work with us. It's rather been like, okay, can you do this? And like. Uh, Okay, well, uh, we haven't found anyone else, or or you come highly recommended from from this team. Uh, we work very close with uh, all kinds of design teams, so so service designers, UX designers, and so on. And they um, they are normally the one who kind of pitch and win the client. And once that is done, they say like, well, this is our tech team prototype. Uh, they're they're highly recommended, and they can do this. So. Um, I can't really say that that is was a major challenge to to get the first corporate uh, client. Uh, maybe because of the recommendation part, right? That really yeah. plays a big. Yeah. Okay. How about for you, Gordon? So, so I, I think you know, um, I know exactly the problem that you're talking about. Um, I think getting corporate client is one thing. I think getting large contracts in the corporate client is another. Um, so, getting kind of drip point drip contracts uh, from a large company is still relatively easy to to achieve but to get to the big meat contracts it's uh you know it's always a challenge for the companies our size when you're up against pwcs and deloitte's accentures and these people um but but i think you know it's down to um you know looking at our our experience it's down to a few things one is tech vendor relationships. So we have very good relationships with the likes of uh, Oracle. Um, and, and that helps a lot because the Oracle sales guys, the, the global account manager of Vodafone will be talking our name in meetings and the global account manager of Thomson Reuters in London will be talking our name. And, and, and so, you know, you, you can get connected or, or you, you at least get into some kind of network where you can approach these guys um, and, and, and then your own network, you know? So, uh, you know, I think, I think if you've never been in the working in the corporate space to get into the corporate space, it must be very difficult. Um, I, I, I've worked in IBM, I've worked in compact computers, uh, in HP. Uh, so I, I know how the middle management think and how they operate, how buyers think. Um, the process that goes on internally a little bit. I know enough to, or I knew enough to somehow um, um, know how to deal with that. But I think if you're a, a startup in Barcelona that, you know, you've never been in the corridors of the fancy buildings and, uh, you know, in London and Paris and, you know, it, it's, it's hard to get in. It's really hard. How about these small contracts? Like you raised a really good point. This, Try not to go for the big contract, but sometimes they come and say like, oh, we've got this big contract. That's all there is, right? But what you're suggesting here is that sometimes there will be another department that they will need something really small, like maybe just a web application, maybe just like, you know, a, a marketing campaign, maybe just something yeah. for the likes of 10, 20, 50K, something a, a meat yeah. manager can approve, right? How do you identify yeah. these, these opportunities? Well, well, I mean, I, I think, you know, from just from our experience, I mean, the, the, the small contracts, let's get, say, under 50,000 euro, um, there are many buyers inside an organization like La Caixa or, or Banco Santander. So there are many people that have this kind of budget. And so you, you just got to go network them and, and reach out to them and, and, you know, use the typical marketing channels. Um, 
and, and, and reach out to them and, and speak, obviously get, you know, registered on their supplier list and, and stuff pops up. Okay. Um, but like I say, these are kind of the 20K, the 15K, the 30K, you know, it's quick approval, very short, you know, cycle time from, from the first call to actually getting engaged. But the kind of the million euro, the half million, that you know, those contracts, then that's where it starts to get a little bit more, um, I would say, uh, that's where the kind of sales element uh, is where you, you have a requirement and less on the technical side. You need to know how to build a proposal uh, that, that ticks the boxes, that gets the, uh, gets the buyer, you know, on your side. And... Uh, you know, I think that's an art that you gain over the years. Um, I think we've done a reasonably good job of that, to be honest with you, over the years. And we're getting better every year. Um, but I, as, I, as I said, I think for the smaller, the drip contracts, it's a great way to get into this, the, you know, the large enterprises. Just get in there, prove yourself with a couple of projects uh, in different departments, maybe one in marketing, one in finance or something. Um, and demonstrate to them that you really guy you guys are really fun to work with. You're good to work with. You're you've got great trust and integrity, and, and you can deliver. And your quality is good. Then then you know then work your relationships. But before we uh, we seal the deal, there's always the dreadful due diligence. There's the vendor. Uh, how you call it? Vendor verification process. Something like that, right? You need to get into the vendor pool. Let's. Let's let, let's say I remember when we were talking to the likes of Orange or HP some years back, and and we needed to undergo this huge and tedious process of approvals, documentation, due diligence, so on and so forth. But and I want your opinion on this: if a company really wants to work with you, there will be a fast track process. So my question is, if Undergoing that long and tedious process is a surefire, uh, surefire way of knowing that they don't really want to work with you because all the times we've gone with corporates, we've gone the, through the fast-tracking process. How's it been for you, Pontus, maybe? Maybe uh, in Sweden they don't yeah, do it. Yeah, <laughs> no, I mean, there, there's, uh, there is some point to what, to what you're saying. Uh, of course, sometimes you, you, you think that you're just trying your your, your and, and your 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 stamina in, in there, um, and um, I don't know. My experience of that has been quite bad, anyway. Because these, these uh, um, I mean, basically, we want to get into client without too much competition, right? So we can set our own pricing and 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 put the, the more, you know, the 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 details of the contract on a more open way instead of being benchmarked against uh, X Y Z, and that that's where you really can can flip the game and and get a better deal um so, so when there's really obvious that hey this is a tender process or you, you have to fight against these people i mean the same thing goes as gordon has been talking about before it's all about trust like it during that process tell them why is it difficult to compare offer a with offer b what's actually included in the in your offer as opposed to to the competitors um that's a great way for you possibility for you to build trust and 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 hopefully the client will actually want to work with you no matter what they first thought they wanted to buy or 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 what the official tender is about um but but uh, um we we really don't have a good uh, good experience of on um, for example public uh, public public tenders or um or, I mean, t- t- tender for public institutions or tenders for, for big corporates. Um, so, of course, w- we do them every now and then. And, and quite often we say, like, hey, we really shouldn't do this again. We should have done like we did with this <laughs> other big client that we that we work with. Um, because I also 100% agree with you, Alex. If they really want to work with you, there is a fast track. Someone will make it happen and they won't let you hop and go through all the hoops. And there's one thing here, and it's really good before we go to, to, to Gordon, because I'm really interested in his, in his opinion on this, but you raise a really good point. When you are competing against other companies, and, and it's extremely frustrating for companies like ours when they contact you just because they, they are using the three-vendor rule, right, or something like that. They have already got two, contract, uh, so two proposals in place. They need somebody else's. 
but they will give you a call last minute. I need this for tomorrow. But it's already set. It's already, they're already convinced. They have already taken a decision. They just want to see whether it really makes sense or not, right? In this, um, in this kind of situations, do you feel like, do you put less interest, less work into that? Is there any way that you guys operate differently just because you're competing to, uh, with other proposals rather than just going alone uh, on a proposal for, for a client? No, no. Um, from our side, you know, for me, a proposal is a sales document. It's, uh, it's, it's your company brand. It's your image. It's everything. So a proposal has to be, uh, if you ask anyone inside, uh, Clearpeaks how I am with proposals, um, it's, it's, it's a sales document and, uh, it doesn't matter if you know, you're being invited into a benchmarking exercise, um, you know what? It, it, it never actually is because you can find that six years later you get a phone call from that same company uh, where true. you were originally benchmarked That's and they true. really liked what they saw, but they had kind of committed themselves to someone else. But you know what? Then the time has come for renewal again of a contract and they said, you know what? We really should reach back to those guys. They were, they were, they were great. So, you know, uh, you know, the life is short. The network is small. Um, the last thing you want to do to your brand is to shove in a shitty proposal because you know it's you're not going to win it. I think that's a mistake. But that's maybe maybe your uh, your I mean your opinion is 100 percent true, mm. and it might be biased just because you've got a, a sales department who can craft that. But for smaller companies that we're well, I've been there, I've been there. I mean, uh, okay. So, but you, you know. yourself, when you were doing like the proposals yourself only, did you actually uh, work the same with the same you know? Mental Absolutely. bandwidth and focus. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. You want yeah, to I, I agree with Gordon. And and not only will will you you do you have the chance to show who you are and what you can do for for that company who might be back six years later, but that person who was in charge of the process or the, those persons that you met in that process will move on to other companies. They will have other challenges, or they had a consultant that that helped them, and they do this tender process all the time and. Next time, they're going to say, you know what, uh, I was in one process and prototype really did a good, a solid impression. And so, um, and, 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 and to be honest, you never quite know when you can have your ideas, whether or not it's rigged or not, you know, whether, whether the client has, has someone else that they rather want to work with than you, but, but you don't really know for sure. So, so give it your best shot at, at any moment. And, and I believe in, in good karma or like th things will come back to, to, to yeah, I a hundred percent can, can, can agree with this. We have been contacted even lately from companies that we talked five years ago. We told them, perhaps we only told them, look, uh, looks like an interesting project. You should do this and that, but we, we don't take this kind of technology. We don't take this kind of project or, we're we're swamped right now. We cannot craft the proposal, and I think the it's Maya Angelou who says like people will not remember what you told them uh, or what you did for them. It, they will only remember how you make them feel. Right. So um, in in this sense, it's like sometimes I'm surprised some companies reaching out again after many years. Like wow, I mean, we just exchanged a few emails or we hopped on a call, something like that. So that's how you exactly. Uh, start building trust, right? Yeah. And and how about uh, is it how about then the upselling part, right? Let let's talk a little bit about the upselling because we're talking a lot about trust. We're companies that you know if we have worked together, it's because we have got similar concepts of quality, of of trust, of what a partner is, or long term vision, right? And so for me, it's really important to have this long-term uh, commitment with people so that you can understand their businesses uh, better. You can upsell them to other services you've got. You can maybe you want to test a new or you want to pilot something, a new technology, something like that, right? Mm -hmm. I remember in the case of, of when we, we started working for ClearPix, for instance, you originally contacted us for design. We were supposed only to do design. Then we started building the HTML, CSS. Then it was the Angular part, and then we went down to Node.js, right? So we did the full stack, but we, we, it's not that we actually sold you, I think. I think it was more of a mutual understanding that we could take on more capacity. Yeah. But perhaps, like, this is a good example of how you can get a, like, a smaller contract, demonstrate and prove the, the way you can work, and then start building into, into, into the client. Um, how do you actually do this, the, 
do you manage all the accounts in the company? What kind of accounts do you manage? And how, how do you keep the relationship uh, alive? Maybe, Gordon, you want to start with this one? Um, so, you know, from, from an account management perspective, we have, uh, we've got, that, that's the bulk of what our sales guys are doing. Okay, so we've got uh, several kind of enterprise clients down in Abu Dhabi and Dubai that are split between some people and same here. Okay, and um, you know, upselling is 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 again, it's it's um, you don't like the word. Know, I, I just this, you know, right. you know we're not really selling. Words. I don't think you guys are really honestly selling either. I think what you are doing is you're. You're just winning confidence. And when you win confidence in a client, they want more because uh, there's a lot more to do. I mean, if you're in an enterprise organization, it never ends, okay, because the business is evolving all the time. Mm-hmm. So as the business evolves, the technology evolves, the application requirements evolve, you know, everything evolves, right? So so long as you're providing uh, you know, quality and, and, and you've got the relationship and you've got the trust, mutual trust, then um, you know the upselling is 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 doing your job, which is you know continuously talking about new requirements, about throwing ideas on the table, bringing innovation, bringing proactiveness to the client, um, and 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 steering them in the right direction, and not just the direction because that might make you some money, right? Uh, but giving them the right advice, and and uh, even if that somehow cuts you off on some pipelines. But um, but give the right advice and the upselling, I think, almost takes care of itself. Pontus, you might want to add up something to here. Uh, no, actually, not not very much. I think Gordon could have been a, a founder of our company as well because it's a very similar philosophy. And uh, yeah, maybe even stress though that that what you deliver is is always you know that that's the the best sales person you can have you know it, it's your 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 deliverables and, and doing a good job and, and you will uh, see that that business will continue come your way um, yeah but for really instance, one more. thing that we've got in common the three of us is we seem to be the kind of company that you need to be top of the mind of the clients right and you need to appear on their linkedin or on their phone or on their email inbox something like that pretty frequently because they talk to a lot of vendors right i mean if we're working for you know, when when we're working for 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 a big corporate, perhaps they're talking to I don't know eighty, hundred different vendors, maybe. Um, so how to stay top of the mind is you actually have got maybe like regular calls with them, or go to go out for lunch, or they are subscribed to your newsletter. So the more things you do, perhaps the better. But uh, what are the what are the best strategies you you find here to to be top of the mind of your contacts? I mean, from from our side, I think it's as uh, as Pontus says. I think it's it's just continuously focusing quality, uh, focusing delivery, uh, providing obviously value. Um, let's not forget the competitive factor of the business that we're in. Um, we are being attacked from all angles every day, as you are and, and as Pontus is, um, with cheaper offerings, with. Uh, you know, you know, so to stay on top, it, it's quality, it's relationship. I, I think probably of all areas, it's something that we could improve. Um, we're maybe uh, a little bit guilty of, of let's say, um, relying a bit too heavily on just the trust and the relationship. Um, you've still got to, you've, you've got to be at the party. You know, you've got to be there all the time. Uh, you've got to be in their diary. Uh, you got to be talking to them, and, and of course, as you said earlier on, you know when you've got twenty other balls in the air, uh, you've got a, a marketing resignation on your hand, and you have to deal with it. You've got a, an office opening in, yeah, I don't know, in New York that you have to deal with it. So it's not always easy to be, you know, in the agenda, you know, at four o'clock on Thursday, and and I think that's where small companies like ours get stressed. But we got one difficulty, one other difficulty at least in our space. I know you don't, you might not have it, Gordon, because you do client work, you do it in their offices, right? I don't know about you, Pontus, but the fact that they never see us, they don't bump into us occasionally at their offices. So it's easier to forget about an all remote company, right? 
Um, right. How is it for you, Pontus? Like, for instance, are you finding this? Because I think you've got a mixed model, right? So, or I'm not mistaken. No, we're actually actually doing most of the work from our own uh, our own office. So we're yeah. very little uh, in in the uh, premises. But you get an office, so they can come to your office. Yes, they can come to our yeah. office, and of course, our our uh, employees are, are out with the clients uh, quite a lot as well. Mm -hmm. um, and I would say yes. I mean, the people who may, who might be in charge of the initial buying decisions, uh, they need to see us again, and they are the ones who probably would uh, we would like to talk to about the new. Uh, new project but um all our clients have hands-on you know the at least the the successful projects and um, we're working very closely with the client and and the person who's in charge of the product with the clients they see us every day even though they don't see me or even though they don't see my employees physically that they meet uh, and they see the progress and we have you know um agile methodologies so so daily stand-up is It and the retro is a part of it and the sprint planning is a part of it yes they do see us uh, e even though we don't check in at their office eight o'clock every morning um so yeah that, that that really doesn't bother me i mean i would say rather the opposite now with with uh, with corona i mean we're, we're struggling with that as a company like what makes our employees feel like they work for for prototype and not for our clients because they spend more time with our clients First of all, they're working from home. That's a good point. A lot more time with their clients than they do with us. And um, we'd like to believe that we bring something else to the table for, for our employees than just, um, just meaningful um, programming tasks. But that's a whole different story. And that, that's another podcast, uh, I guess. Um, uh, correct. <laughs> you could talk about it. A couple of last questions to wrap this up. Uh, one other difficulty to selling is when your contact in the client changes, right? You build your trust over the years with this person. Maybe that person was the one who reached out to you and you, you know, you go out for lunch with him or her, you like, you, know, you exchange emails, you're in a very, you build a relationship, maybe even a friendship, right? Over the years. And one day this is gone and the next person comes, has a different agenda. It's like no vendors or everything to this one country or just one vendor for everything, right? How, Do you deal with that? Have you had any painful experience you want to share and how you reconducted from somebody who really wanted to cut off any ties with you and you managed to keep the relationship? <laughs> it's like, Gordon, you're laughing. So that seems... Like well, I mean, uh, we've had several. <laughs> got a few. <laughs> uh, I mean, look, you know, when a CIO is... When a CIO moves on and a new CIO comes in, that's when anything can happen. And we've had three situations where big, you know, big impact situations, you know, probably uh, with HP, maybe we were billing around $1.5 million per year uh, with HP. Um, the a guy called Michael Capellas was left as the CIO and a guy called Randy Mock came in as the CIO from Dell, uh, from Walmart and uh, changed the model literally in a couple of months. Uh, all external, any, any vendor that's doing less than $10 million a year with us, out. It's a blanket statement. They, they, they passed an Excel spreadsheet. And, uh, and in the Excel spreadsheet, we were below the line, Clearpeak's name, below the line, and, and you know you got three months to wrap up. And it's very hard to replace that type of business. Yeah. You know? Uh, and that's just a management decision. Everything to India, uh, you know, I don't want to talk about it. We don't want to, you know, just drew the line. Uh, and there were hundreds of vendors under that line. Um, we had the similar one again with... Um, with that one you didn't recover from? Like you, you lost the, the, the account? Lost no, the no, we lost in three, three months' time. We were, everyone wow. was gone. So we had a lot of people sitting around. Any of these um, situations where you managed to reconduct the situation or... I mean, there's, there's no, there's no, I mean, I mean, the procurement people were black and white. I mean, literally that's seven years of very high quality service relationships everywhere inside the account. Uh, a CIO comes in, red line is drawn and that's it. Uh, we had it again um, in London with, with another very large enterprise and uh, exact same thing. Everything to India. Well, actually, in this case, they bought an operation in India. 
um, and then uh, you, you know. So how do you how can you circum uh, circumvent that? There, there, there's there's no way to circumvent that. And and you know what? You just got to do what all the advisors say, which is never have more than twenty percent of your revenue coming from one client. Yeah. Yeah. And also, Gordon, I, I was thinking like, I mean, if, if a client clearly states that they don't want to work with you, it's not really much. You, I mean, I don't want to work with the client uh, where the boss says, I don't want to work with you anyway. So, so it might <laughs> be the best. And the bet was on them because hopefully you were running a successful operation with your client before. In comes the CAO, needs to prove themselves. Uh, if if that person takes a bet to, to you know to, to slash whatever was working before that that that's person's gamble and, and you can't really yeah. do much much about it it's it's up to him or her to to yeah, yeah. out the winner or loser and um, yeah I, that's right it, that's tough tough luck yeah any, no, no. any experience Pontos any experience on your side of changing the person off contact in the and the uh, side. No, no, not to our to our disadvantage. I would rather see that the the possibility with that 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 you have a mm -hmm. very good. Uh, I mean, you still have the possibility of, of continuing with a, with a great, a very big client. That's the most likely case, actually. And you have a new advocate for for your business moving somewhere else, um, at, who might open up new doors. So, yeah. That, that you contact good. them. You contact. You follow up with them and contact them to see how they're doing in the new company. Maybe. Has that opened up of new course, opportunities? We're a company that is small enough to be very close in contact with with our uh, with our clients and our, our you know key key uh, key buyers. Yes. Perfect. Last question. We wrap this up already. We always like to go out with a bank. So biggest fuck up you've done in selling contracts, and the most expensive fuck up that you can share. Oh, I I only did one really big one, and that was painful. Uh, we signed a contract track really early um, in in uh, in our our history um, now that I think of it I, I remember it I felt it was cursed I, I got a, a really nice pen from my wife uh, when I married you know on this Mont Blanc and I signed the contract with them thinking like hey this is my new contract signing pen of course it was a shit contract and that and I didn't use that pen pen for a long time um, Anyway, we basically went into to, uh, a fixed budget um, contract with very unclear um, metrics, thinking like, hey, this is to our, if anything, this is to our advantage. And we had one of our best clients was in the board of this new company, thinking like, if things goes wrong, you know, we always have this person in common that, and she will, uh, you know, hold our back. Backs. Uh, it didn't work that way, and and of course we felt kind of uneasy to to go and cry on mommy to have someone help us out once we were in a mess. Uh, it was it was I don't know. It was it was really painful. Um, what was the damage? Can you can you share? Yeah, I mean, yeah, basically we had to work for a long long time without getting paid in the end of the project. And it came to the point that we should have cut it off earlier because in the end we we put the whole company at risk because it was the second or third year in 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 our history and we didn't have the the liquidity situation. So it was, uh, and when you, once you start fighting for your survival, uh, things get really ugly. So, so it was, it was not good. Gordon. I mean, it's, it's, it's I think there, there, there have been a few. Um, yeah. When we first moved out to the, the Gulf, um, you know, we didn't really understand the, the buyer mentality in the Gulf. And there's, there's a lot of you need to invest discussion that goes on down there. So you want to get in and work with us, you need to make an investment up front. Okay. So not dissimilar to, uh, uh, to Pontus um, point there that, you know, we, we entered into one deal with uh, uh, an airport authority and uh, with a view to kind of invest um, and that, in principle, then would get us in the door. So that's just naivety on our side. Would get us in the door. Would get us the opportunity to to shine in front of this client. Uh, and then there would be a lot of kind of downstream business. Uh, we got suckered, right? So we did the investment and then got kicked out. Um, and you know, 
there's a lot of that going on that, that you know, a buyer will take the boutique, get them to make the investment, then get the next boutique to take the next, to, to make the, the next step of the investment. So, the, you know, there are tricks and, and call them dirty tricks, call them just, just that's the way and, and not a problem, but yeah, costly. Um, yeah, three, 350. I don't remember exactly mandates of, of free, uh, consulting. Right. That that hurts. Yeah, that that, that hurts, and um, it hurts especially when the investment does not then have the opportunity to recover itself. Right, that that's what hurts. Right, um, but you know, I mean, you know, you know, there's mistakes, and and uh, and that's fine because because that's you know you can never get it right all the time. And and we always learn, right? We always say that you either win or you learn, right? Sometimes it's very expensive learning, some very expensive tuition, but... You don't do it twice. Exactly. All right, gentlemen, I think we can wrap it up here. Thank you very much um, for being here today. All right. Thank you, Alex. Alex. Nice to meet you, Pontus. We are Mars-based an all-remote consultancy from Barcelona, specializing in web and mobile development. We help all kinds of companies, from startups to big corporations, to conceptualize, design, and develop solutions for their business using technology. And now, how can we help you?